you know, people started uh, their, their, their talk this morning by, by telling which type of computer they were using when they were young. In my case, this was Apple IIe. So that shows my age. <laughs> and my type probably also shows, shows my, my age. Okay, so this is, I'm going to, to ask the question of whether greater availability of alternative data um, is good for forecasting, is going to improve people's forecast. Uh, and what I'm going to talk about, what I'm going to present, the results I'm going to show are based on a joint work with uh, Olivier Dessin, with Atin Sead and Laurent Frezard. Uh, we have several papers on this topic, and that's part of a broader research agenda, which is uh, on the effect of AI and big data on, on financial market, which is funded by the, by the EU. Uh, so the answer to this question seems to be obvious. If people have more data for forecasting, one would expect that, well, probably their forecasts are going to improve, at least weekly improve. At worst, maybe nothing is happening. Uh, the, our answer to this question is going to be provocative in the sense that we are going to show, we show, we provide some evidence that this may not be the case, that there might be a trade-off. Uh, and to show that, we start from economic theory, we start from the, phase, from the fact that when people when, when, when people have access to different types of information, they are going to trade off the cost of different types of information. And if the cost of one type of information goes down, presumably they are going to invest more in this type of information and less on the other type. So really the reasoning, the reason why uh, we argue that the answer to this question is not as obvious as it seems is because we start from people, uh, people incentive. And in this case, uh, equity analysis incentive. So let me, uh, let me explain this in more, uh, more details, so I guess I can move. Just to convince you that people have access to more and more data, uh, this is just a chart uh, which is taken from this uh, website that shows the diversity of alternative data uh, providers. So you have people, speci firms specializing in providing satellite images, for instance, firms specialize, uh, speci that specialize in providing credit and debit card data and so on and so forth. And those firms provide some raw data, raw alternative data, very different type of data, which then are consumed by uh, institutional investors or equity analysts, for instance. Um, this chart is showing the evolution of the number of alternative data providers over time. To produce this chart, what, what we did is to use uh, a directory uh, of alternative data providers, which is provided by uh, JP Morgan. And this shows that over time, we went from a number of alternative data providers that was around 20 in 1996, up to more than 500 in uh, 2017. So there is a growth of alternative data providers that's data abundant, but that's not new. It starts long ago, it started around uh, 2000. So that's not a new phenomenon. Uh, so the natural question is whether, of course, at this stage, is whether there is information in alternative data. There are many academic papers on this question, and the answer is yes. So for this project, we, uh, we reviewed, we found 26 academic papers on this topic. That is 26 papers that, that use different types of alternative data, satellite images, uh, Google search data and so on and so forth, and that try to forecast stock returns or uh, real outcomes like, for instance, uh, stock earnings. And what those papers find is typically that there is information. You can use those data to forecast stock returns or, let's say, stock earnings, but the predictability is, is, is short term. 
None of those papers find predictability beyond one year. Many of them do not report results, in fact, for predictability beyond one year, but we suspect that this is because they did not find anything. In fact, we did our own work on that, and we did not find any predictability. That does not mean that one cannot find alternative data that will be predictive beyond this horizon, but that seems to be not the case, at least for the alternative data that people have considered. So we conjecture that most alternative data is short-term oriented. Not, maybe not all the alternative data, but that's a reasonable uh, hypothesis. And so then the question becomes whether does the greater availability of short-term oriented data improve financial forecasting? And the economic reasoning on this question is, well, if people have access to more data, then the cost of information acquisition is going down. Then if the cost of something is going down, people are going to consume more of it. And so people are going to have access to more information. Their forecasts are going to improve. That's the standard economic reasoning. That's the reasoning you get, for instance, in a paper like Grossman and Stiglitz in 1980, which is one of the pillars, uh, one of the main theories that people use to think about the effect of more information. But those models typically are static. They are very simplified view of the real world. And those are models in which people pay a cost for information, they get information, and they forecast one payoff, one cash flow. Well, in reality, when you want to price a security, you are going to have to forecast cash flows over multiple periods of time in the future, over the short term and the long term. So then you know whether it's clear that maybe greater availability of short term oriented data is going to reduce the cost of accessing short term information. So people are going to improve their forecast of short term cash flows. But maybe whether that's going to be the case for long term cash flows, that's less clear. Uh, that's less clear. And in fact, what we argue, theoretically, and then we provide evidence of that, is that there may be even a disincentive for people to collect long-term information if the cost of short-term information becomes lower. And here we start from, from the idea that very often uh, forecasters are going to face a multitasking problem, especially in the context of, um, of security analysis. They will have to invest, put effort in collecting information for forecasting short-term cash flows, and they will have to put some effort to forecast long-term cash flows. Of course, you know, if you put some effort to forecast short-term earnings, this information is going to be useful as well for forecasting long-term earnings because earnings are correlated over time. But still, I mean, there might be something unique in long-term earnings that requires some specific type of information collection. Now, if the cost of collecting short-term information goes down, in the presence of a multitasking cost, you, you, are, you, you, may, you may be incentivized to put more effort on the first task and less effort on the second task. That leads to the prediction that maybe in this condition, well, the quality of long-term forecast is going to decline, and that's the prediction we test using a set-side equity analysis forecast. And we find support for this for, for our prediction. I'm going to explain in more detail the, the nature of the test. So let me come back first on the, on the theory. Just, I want, I want to make my assumptions clear. How do we get to this prediction? Then you may disagree with the assumptions. Maybe my assumptions are not correct. Uh, so this is a very simplified model where there is a firm and the firm is going to generate earnings at date uh, one, at date two, the short term, and earnings at date three, the long term. The, earn the earnings are correlated over time, and there is one guy, think of this guy as an equity analyst, who has to report forecast about at date one, about short term earnings and long term earnings. Um, 
the guide the forecaster's compensation depends on the quality of her forecast. Uh, the smaller the distance between her forecast and the realization of the earnings, the larger the compensation. Uh, in order to improve the quality of, the, uh, of her forecast, what the forecaster is going to do is to collect information at date zero. Collect information about short-term earnings and collect information about long-term earnings. So what are my assumptions? So what I would like to understand is how much effort the analysis is going to put on each, uh, on each task. So here are my assumptions. First, I'm going to assume that earnings are correlated. So the two tasks are different, but not, not unrelated. That's realistic. Second assumption, effort pays. The more effort you put in collecting short-term information, the better your short-term forecast. Uh, third assumption, this is the standard economic assumption, effort is costly. That is, yes, you can improve the quality of your forecast by putting more effort, by paying for more information, but there is a cost of doing that. And fourth assumption, this is really the assumption that I need. Multitasking is costly. That is, if you put more effort on one task, then the marginal cost of putting effort on the other task is, is going up. That's really important. If you work a lot in the morning on one problem, then maybe your attention your remaining attention for a second problem in the afternoon is going to be lower. That's the idea. And then fifth assumption, the availability of short-term information reduces the cost of obtaining short-term information. Um, what is the objective of the forecaster here? The forecaster wants to determine how much effort to put on each task to minimize the weighted, the weighted sum of her expected squared forecasting error because the compensation depends on that, but of course taking into account the fact that there is a cost of obtaining information. So there is a simple trade-off here, which is as the forecaster is putting more effort uh, in the task of forecasting, then um, her expected square forecasting errors go down, but the cost of effort go up. What is the solution to this trade-off? Very standard. Well, what the forecaster is going to do is to equalize the marginal benefit of more information to the marginal cost. The twist is that there are two tasks. There are two different types of effort here. So that's a little bit more complex than the standard model, if you wish, because of this feature. So what is the implication of the model? Very simple. When the cost of short-term information goes down, the analysis is going to put more effort on getting short-term information. That's the optimal thing to do in the model. But there is a downside. She has, she's going to put less effort on collecting long-term information because of this cost of multitasking. And as a result, the quality of her long-term forecast may decrease. Not always. That depends on some condition in the model. I will come back to that. But the quality of her long-term forecast may decrease. That might be at the expense of her long-term forecast. By quality, I mean informativeness. So I'm going to use a lot the term informativeness. I'm going to define it. Uh, formally, because that's, uh, that's a notion which is a bit uh, vague. So we define the informativeness of a forecast at a given horizon H by the following quantity. So let me explain quickly what that means. So this difference is the reduction in uncertainty about future earnings at a given horizon for someone who has access to the forecast of the analyst at horizon H. That's the amount by which you decrease your uncertainty. That's a very natural way to uh, measure 
the quality of the, the analyst forecast. If the analyst was perfect, then this thing will be equal to zero. No uncertainty at all after observing the analyst forecast. And then we normalize everything by prior uncertainty just to get an index, something that varies between zero and one. That's the normalization. And the nice thing, the nice thing about this measure is that some, that's something you can estimate because that, that's very close. In fact, that's the theoretical R square of a regression of earnings that arrive an edge on, on the forecast of the analyst at this horizon. So that's something we can estimate. We can estimate empirically with data on forecast. Okay, so that's what we do. So now let me, let me provide evidence uh, regarding my prediction. So we test the implication of this uh, theory using sell side equity analysts. Why, why do we use analysts? First of all, because they are very important information producers in financial markets. Um, they produce earning forecasts at various horizons, short term, long term, and they increasingly rely on alternative data to produce those forecasts. That has been uh, that has been mentioned several times in media, and there are academic papers on this uh, on this issue. How do we measure the informativeness of an equity analyst? Let's say uh, the UBS equity analyst, for instance, for a stock. Um, So we use data from IBES. So we have IBES is reporting analyst forecast since 1983. So we look at the period 1983-2017. And every day in our sample, for every analyst in our sample, this is a very large sample. Uh, I think we have more than 14,000 analysts in the sample. We regress for each forecast of the analyst at a given horizon H. Uh, the earnings of the stock covered by the analyst at this horizon on the forecast of the analyst. Normalize, we normalize everything by, uh, by, the, by, by the size of uh, firm J, if J is a firm covered by the analyst here. And so the R-square of this regression gives us a measure of uh, the UBS equity analyst, for instance, at horizon H, let's say in one quarter, or let's say in five years from now, uh, on, a given, on a given day. So we do that daily. Of course, analysts are not going to report new forecasts every day, but that just, uh, that's not very important. We could do that at a lower frequency. We always take the latest forecast to run this regression that gives us a measure of a given analyst, the, the, the informativeness of a given analyst forecast on a given day at a given horizon. Okay, just to give you a sense of what we get out of that, Overall, because we have many days in the sample, many analysts, and so on and so forth, we get more than 65 million observations over the entire sample period. And here I'm showing the average value across all analysts, all days in the sample, of analyst forecast informativeness um, over the short term, few, few months, up to the long term, five, five years, 60 months here. So this is what we call the term structure of analyst forecast informativeness. This is very aggregated. Of course, you know this thing is going to vary a lot across analysts, uh, industries, over time, and so on and so forth. But that's just to get a sense of the data. And here we get something very intuitive. We get, we get that analysts are much better at forecasting the short term than forecasting the long term. That's not what the theory is about. That's sort of obvious, but that's interesting. And so, what our theory predicts is that over time, 
this uh, term structure should have become steeper. Analysis should have become better at forecasting the short term and worse at forecasting the long term. When, when I say that, it's a, bit, it's a bit quick. What I say is that when analysts get more and more access to alternative data, that's what the theory predicts. But let me first look at the long run evolution of this curve. There are several ways to look at the long run evolution of equity um, analyst forecast informativeness. One way, which is what, uh, what we did in this chart, is to show the trend in the informativeness of their short run forecast from 1983 up to 2017, and the trend in the informativeness of their long-term forecast. Here this is, uh, long-term means more than, uh, more than two years. And so you see the striking feature is that the informativeness of short-term forecast has improved, while the informativeness of long-term forecast has declined over time. Another way to show the same result is to run a regression of the slope of the term structure of analyst forecast informativeness on, uh, on time. And what this picture is showing is that the slope of the term structure has become steeper. Analysts are, have become better at forecasting the short term over time, worse at forecasting the long term. And as I was mentioning before, over the same period of time, analysts have access to more and more alternative data. So, of course, you know, this, those graphics, you know, does not show that this graphic does, so far, I have not shown that this trend is, is, is causing the other one. I just have two interesting trends here. So, to try to go a little bit more in the direction of showing that there is a connection, what we do in, the, what we do in our project is to show that industries in which analysts use alternative data more frequently are industries in which the trend I have shown before uh, is stronger. There is a lot of heterogeneity in the, in the, in the steepening of the term structure of analyst forecast informativeness, informativeness over time. Heterogeneity across analysts, for instance, heterogeneity across industries. So what we show next is that those industries in which analysts mention more frequently the use of alternative data to produce their forecast are industries in which this trend that I was showing before uh, is stronger. Uh, so we do that again using the J.P. Morgan directory. We go back in time in 2000 and we use, you know, the analyst forecast report. We scan the text of those reports, we check you know, how many times analysts mention the use of alternative data in their report to produce their forecast, and that gives us a way to measure the intensity with which analysts uh, use alternative data. Okay, so that's, that's the first piece of evidence in favor of the, of the mechanism I was mentioning before. So our main test, our main piece of evidence relies on the introduction of a new social media in the US, a new source of alternative data for, uh, for analysts. A shock, if you wish, to the amount of alternative data that analysts can, uh, can use to form their forecast. This shock is the introduction of a social media which is called stock tweets, which is dedicated to, um, to the stock market in the US. That's the main one, where basically this is Twitter for, uh, for the stock market. So we have access to all messages posted on this platform since the, the launch of this platform, which is uh, 2009. 
So there are many messages, more than 40 million messages. Uh, so why do we think this is a good, uh, good laboratory? Uh, first of all, there is evidence that equity analysts use StockTweets as a source of information. For instance, StockTweets has been integrated. Uh, is, uh, the, the information on StockTweets is uh, the data feed. It's provided by the main uh, data vendors like Bloomberg and Reuters. And we provide also evidence that analysts indeed seems to rely on information for, for, from StockTweets. For instance, they are more likely to change their, uh, their forecast or their recommendation following an increase in activity about a stock on, uh, on StockTweets. Uh, and then we also show that stock tweets indeed contain short-term information. Using the messages posted on stock tweets, we show that one can predict, for instance, uh, earnings or sales up to one year, but not beyond this, uh, this horizon again. Okay, so what is the main test we do? The main test is the following. Uh, ideally, what we'd like to do is to have analysts who are exposed to stock tweets or an analyst who is exposed to stock tweets and the same analyst who is not exposed to stock tweets. We cannot do that. So what we try to do, which, which is closer, which, which tries to, to come close to that, is to vary, to exploit the fact that depending on the stocks that they follow, analysts are differentially exposed to stock tweets. Um, so Using this, uh, this idea, if you wish, we run a regression of our measure of uh, analyst forecast informativeness across all analysts in our sample for the period 2005-2017, so around the introduction of uh, stock tweets, on various control variables and a, a measure of analyst exposure to the information produce, produced on stock tweets. We call that data exposure. And this thing is varying over time because the expansion of stock tweets over time has been progressive. There are more and more messages on stock tweets uh, as we move uh, over time. And this thing is varying as well across analysts because there are some analysts who follow stocks which are very much discussed on stock tweets and some who don't. So this is like varying, if you wish, the, the exposure of analysts. Uh, to, alternative, to alternative data, to a new source of alternative data. So, of course, the big problem that we face is that we need to make sure that this thing captures exactly <laughs> unique information produced on stock tweets, not information coming from other sources that people use to, uh, to discuss stocks on, uh, on stock tweets. That's very difficult to do. We try to do our best on this. Uh, this is the main methodological issue that we're facing. I'm going to explain uh, quickly how we do that. But first, what is our prediction? Our prediction is that as analysts are more, uh, analysts are more exposed to stock tweets, then the quality of their short-term forecast becomes better. The coefficient in my regression should be positive. Uh, but the quality of their long-term forecast becomes worse. The quality of the coefficient for long-term forecast, the sign of the coefficient for the long-term forecast should be negative. So again, the main challenge is to design measures of analyst exposure to stock tweets that make sure that we capture information which is really unique to stock tweets. Again, that's difficult to do. We use two, prox two, two measures. Well, first of all, how do we do that? We, we are going to measure an analyst exposure to stock tweets by um, the average exposure of the, to stock tweets of the stocks followed by the analyst. 
So that's the first step. So then the question is, how do we measure a stock exposure to stock tweets? And here we use two, uh, two approaches. In our first approach, we use the number of users following a stock as a proxy of the exposure to stock tweets for the stock. Um, when, uh, when people register on stock tweets, when users register on stock tweets, they have to declare the stocks they are going to follow. And this is called their watch list. And typically, the watch list of a user does not change over time. It's very sticky. So the reason why this variable is changing over time is uh, because of stock tweet expansion, essentially. And we show that, uh, as far as we can, we show that this is, there is no correlation between this variable and external source of news concerning a stock, for instance. And then we use another, uh, another variable to check whether we get consistent results, which is the number of messages about a stock. That's a very natural way to measure, you know, <laughs> a stock exposure to stock tweets, but this one has clearly a problem, which is a stock is going to be very much discussed on stock tweets on days in which there is news in media about the stock. So to control for this problem, or to try to get away from this problem, we use what we call hypothetical messages. Um, to be quick, that's just the market share of all messages on stock tweets for a stock over the entire sample period, 2005, uh, 2009, 2017, multiplied by the total number of messages on stock tweets about this stock. So intuitively, this measure, what we call hypothetical, this is very much like the average number of messages about a stock that we would expect on a given day. And this average, intuitively, is not, is not related to news arrival about the stock, news from other sources. And we show that indeed this is, well, we show that our measure is not correlated with uh, measures of news that we, can, uh, that we can observe at least. Okay, so to tell a long story short, that's our main, uh, our main result. Our main finding is that uh, the sign of the coefficient in the regression I was mentioning before are as predicted. That is, for analysts, when, when analysts become more exposed to stock tweets, the quality of their short-term forecast improve, and the quality of their long-term forecast decline. Those figures are difficult, the signs are correct, but the, the, sorry, the signs go in the right direction, but the figures are, the economic size of the coefficients are, are difficult, is, is difficult to interpret, uh, because we normalize um, or explanatory variable by their standard deviation. So you should be a bit careful, you know, in trying to figure out what that means exactly. Uh, the effect is not that big, but I would expect that. You know, I would not expect a single piece of alternative data to move a lot, you know, the quality of analysis forecast. The effect is not that big, but it is in the direction predicted by the, by the mechanism. Another way to see the same result is to look at the effect of an increase in exposure to alternative data, a one standard deviation increase in alternative data for an analysis in a sample on the term structure of uh, a forecast informativeness. And this is what is shown on this graphic. Basically, we get a steepening of the term structure for this, uh, for this analyst. We test additional predictions of the mechanism I was describing initially. There are two additional predictions. First of all, all the effects I have mentioned should be weaker when earnings are more, auto are more correlated over time. That makes sense because when earnings are more correlated, then if you get short-term information, you also get long-term information. 
So we should expect weaker effect in this condition. And then the second prediction of the, of the theory is that effects should be stronger for analysis for which the cost of multitasking is larger. So we assume that analysis that follow more stocks have a larger cost of multitasking. And so following this, uh, this logic, we find that uh, those two additional predictions are satisfied also in the data. Okay, so let me uh, conclude. So what is the main takeaway? So data alternative, which by that we mean short-term oriented data, improve security analysis forecast. Yes, a short horizon, uh, maybe not a, a long horizon. We provide evidence that this, is not, that this may not be the case. Of course, you know, this is, this is just one set of results. Much more work is needed on that. I think the interesting message here is that um, data abundance does not mean that forecasts are going to improve at all horizon. Uh, that's, I think, the main message of this, uh, of this work. And I think there are two interesting implications. One implication is uh, regards uh, stock price informativeness. Uh, a stock price is the sum of discounted uh, expected cash flows in the future. So this is the sum of discounted forecast. Um, so because this is, this is that, prices are informative about fundamentals. So fundamental, by fundamental, I mean that's difficult to measure fundamental. So let's say that you measure fundamental by the realization, using the realization of cash flows uh, that you can observe uh, in the future. So if the informativeness of forecast changes, then stock price informativeness should change as well. Now the direction of the change is not completely clear. On the one hand, the quality of short-term forecast gets better, but the quality of long-term forecast gets worse. So what's going to be the net effect on the distance between uh, prices and fundamentals is, is unclear. And, and in fact, the empirical literature on this topic has shown that the, in the long run, the evolution of stock price informativeness has been, uh, has been ambiguous. Um, so that's, an interesting, uh, that's an, inter an interesting question is whether this uh, ambiguity regarding the long run evolution of stock price informativeness is related to the patterns I have shown before or not. That's one question. A second implication regards uh, corporate investment. If long-term forecasts become less informative, then the value of long-term investment is going to take more time to be reflected in, uh, in stock prices. But if this is so, this may uh, maybe reduce managers' incentive to undertake investment projects that will pay only in the long term. Um, so maybe the additional, there is a connection between corporate investment, especially investment in long-term projects, and an alternative data, and the effect of alternative data on, the, on people incentive to forecast uh, the short term and forecast the long term. And we, we, we began working on that, and, and so far we, found, we, we find evidence consistent with this, uh, this, uh, this idea that is, that, is, that is mentioned here. So thanks a lot.